Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, game, ink weight, I'm every element around. So my name is Rosalind Lapeer. I'm an associate professor at the University of Montana. I'm in the environmental studies department, and we teach both environmental studies classes and environmental science classes. Uh, if they're in graduate school, they get a master's of science degree, um, and if they're an undergraduate, they get a bachelor of arts degree. So we're kind of a blended wow. program okay. where students can come into the program because we're interdisciplinary. Students can either be very sciencey in what they're doing, or they can be more sort of social science humanities focused. But they still have to take a lot of science. Yeah. So <laughs> it's good to be well rounded. And I was reading about you, and you are a physicist deep down. Yes, I am. <laughs> so um, before we get into like what you've been doing recently and your work with um, environmental science and outreach and everything that you've been doing, I want to kind of go into the Wayback Machine and talk about like how did you get involved in science and especially how did you got, get involved in physics? And I want to take us through the story of how you got from physics to environmental science. Okay. So I grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation, and I lived primarily um, with my grandparents and with my mother, who was a single mother. And um, when I was in high school, I became interested in math and science and discovered it was something that I was good at. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to college, there was a small college uh, in Colorado called Colorado College that my senior year of high school, they went to every single high school in Montana that was on a, in a reservation community, and they recruited for students to go to Colorado College. So I applied. Oh, wow. I applied without never, never having been there, never seen the place, didn't even know where Colorado Springs was. I'm not even sure if I had been in Colorado. I probably hadn't been. Wow. Um, so I applied to go there, and I started out as a math major. And in fact, many of my friends today from college are were math majors because mm -hmm. that's the program I started in. I also took uh, classes in physics, um, but not any other science. So um, for those of you who are physicists, you know that <laughs> physics is at the top of the food chain. But if you're a physicist, you usually don't have to take a biology class or a chemistry class. But oh, if that's what you mean. But if, it, you're yes. a, but if you're a biology major or a <laughs> chemistry major, you have to take physics. Correct. So anyway. So, so I'm, our so I'm, listeners know that I have actually never taken chemistry in college, and I took biology in, in high school. So yeah, see, I, my other science knowledge is awful. I only know math and physics and astronomy. That's it. Yeah. Yes, because yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when I was um, when I was an undergraduate, I only took physics and math. Mm -hmm. And as we were moving through the program, uh, we started taking kind of the higher level math. I, I took linear equations, which is a very easy class, but not for me. What? Um, and then I took abstract algebra, and that just completely did me in. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what was going on in the class. I didn't know what they were talking about. I went to the professor's office literally every single day and said, mm -hmm. please explain this to me. I don't know what's going on. 
And that was the point where I was just like, I don't think math is for me. Right. As we a were, major. As a major. Yeah. We were kind of evolving into something that I wasn't quite. So, so um, I went to the physics department where I had already been taking classes mm-hmm. and went and talked to one of the professors and said, so will there be anything harder than differential equations in physics? And they're like, nah. No. I'm, te- I'm teaching classical mechanics right now, and that's like all differential equations. Yes. That's all that class is. So, yes. So then, so at that point, um, yeah, I became a physics major. Yeah. But then, and then, so, so you're an undergrad, you're only being exposed to basically math or physics. And then when do you get exposed for, to basically any other science <laughs> after that? Well, me personally? Yeah. Well, so, I mean... When I was an undergraduate, I was the lone female for four years. And And you're the lone female of color. And I'm the lone female of color for four years. Yeah. And um, everybody else in the department was, um, you know, geeky white males. And um, when I was reaching my senior year, there was a lot of different, both uh, government um, agencies and corporations who were recruiting us to go and work um, in their agency and or to go to grad school. And it was at that point where I was realizing, and um, please, students of today, do not take my advice on this. I was realizing at that point that I would be spending the rest of my life with the same people that I had just spent the last four years. So I mm-hmm. thought, hmm, maybe I should take a different turn. I see. <laughs> than what I was doing. Anyway, but it's very different now. It is different now. Extremely different now. But I, I than, think that that's a, I mean, that's a realistic experience that a, a lot of people have is I mean even now in Sackness where they're they are in a in a field where they feel like the climate of that field is not inclusive enough or they don't feel like they belong there and that really pushes them out I've heard many 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 <laughs> students that have started in physics or even finished like you in physics but did not continue down that line because of the climate of Maybe just that university or maybe just that, um, you know, that field in physics or something like that. But I mean, it's still a, it's still a problem sometimes. And it's good that we talk about it. And you talk to those grad students that are already in that um, program and you do some research. Yeah. Yeah. Before you do that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah. So I think it's different now. And I think that you can find programs with that are definitely much more diverse yeah. and um, diverse by gender and by people of color. And I think there are places now where you can definitely go to right. that you're going to have a different experience than something that is um, kind of the monoculture yeah. um, that I was experiencing when yeah. I was um, in school. But I, you know, I loved physics and I liked math. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by the time I, mean, I, I understand. finished. <laughs> But um, so so I left there and I and I worked for an agency for a while called the Council of Energy Resource Tribes, which was a Native American nonprofit NGO that was in Denver, and um, they worked with tribes with natural resource development. That's awesome. And they and so I was I was you know your typical kind of research assistant, research associate, and I worked with the geologists and I worked with the attorney and I worked with you know the different um, people that were in who were at CERT at that time, including lots of scientists who were working with tribes to address issues of uh, natural resource development Mm -hmm. and also environmental issues. And so at that time, that was sort of sparked then my interest in having that as perhaps a um, career path 
of working with tribes, working in tribal communities, and addressing um, perhaps not just environmental issues or natural resource development, but also just addressing um, issues that tribes thought were important and to have people who had um, education and training behind them mm -hmm. um, who could work with them. So long story short, I end up back in school. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I went back to school and decided to get a degree in environmental history. And um, okay. I was allowed in my environmental history department because, um, uh, and this was at the University of Montana, they allowed me to create an interdisciplinary coursework where I could do both kind of the environmental um, science, ethnobotany part, also look at religion, because I'm also interested in religion. I and, read about that. Like, and then yeah. do the actual history as well. So I was able to blend um, those interests of mine together when I was getting my when I was getting my PhD. So I, I was reading about your work, and this has made me really think about these things. I Because I do inclusion work and outreach work, there's a very much of a disconnect between the vocabulary and the like terminology we use in science versus the terminology that's used in social science. And like, I think there's a lot of uh, miscommunication that happens between social science and, and um, you know, physics and biology and chemistry and all that. So like, you're telling me your story. And basically, you're telling me you're going from this very, you know, I want to say, ob you know, I'm objective finger quotes, um, you know, field of physics and math. And then you're going to this kind of area where you're kind of venturing into that social science realm. How did you adapt? How? I mean, you had to kind of relearn this academic language, but from a different field. And it must have been like, kind of hard. <laughs> so how did that, how did that go? Well, so before I, before I went to um, get a PhD, I actually got a master's degree in religion. Okay. And so I went from physics to religion and, and those are very similar, <laughs> but different. Yeah. So, I mean, I still was really interested in understanding the universe, right. And understanding how the world works. But then I also became interested in then how do people conceptualize it in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. And religion is one method of conceptualizing the universe. And um, I was interested in people's um, cosmologies that were created. Right. So with different um, uh, indigenous people, what kinds of, um, you know, how, how did they imagine that their universe was really functioning. Mm -hmm. What and, was the mechanism? Yeah, what was the mechanism behind that? And they really did have that kind of this blended view that we would see today as it was partly an understanding of, of the natural world as natural science, and, but then also they had layered on top of that their own cosmology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some people now who... Um, write about this sort of thing when they talk about, you know, quantum mechanics and that there's that, you know, indigenous people have this view of the world. I wouldn't quite go that far because I think that they're not understanding it from the mathematical kind of mechanistic um, sense of the way the world works. But I think that a lot of indigenous people have some very, very interesting ways of the way that they imagine that the world works. And that's what really intrigued me about studying religion. And, um, and it's something that I still do to today. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I try to do in my own um, scholarship, in my own research now, is try to do this blending of what we would consider sort of natural science 
and um, religious studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those two things kind of fit pretty nicely in environmental history. Right. Um, that's what I was going to ask. Like, so so how, does that, so how does that come up in environmental history? So, I mean, environmental history consi- considers that discipline to be kind of multidisciplinary, where there are people who do study a lot of different sciences um, because some people want to understand the natural world sometimes from the beginning of time, right? So there's folks who do kind of the evolutionary histories of the world. Um, there are some people who are interested in some very specific relationships between, say, animals and plants and humans. And, and like, so, when did that all start kind of thing? Yeah, and okay. so because of that, there's uh, people uh, need to understand that science and they so that they can write about it mm-hmm. uh, and, and tell people how those connections work. So, for example, I have a friend in Canada who wrote this really great book on the history of the Northern Great Plains, and his entire first chapter is about grass and about precipitation and about the relationship between um, how uh, grass is able to have certain nutrients in it that then attract certain animals and kind of this relationship between the tall grass prairies and the short grass prairies and bison and right. other animals. And that's very so, scientific. That's very scientific. Yeah. And so, and then he goes from there to then talk about the relationship with humans and human societies, you know, all the way up to um, the present mm-hmm. um, and, and the kinds of relationships we have with the natural world today. So in environmental history, there has been this blending between sort of, you know, science, usually kind of biological science, but science and telling the story of humans. And right, because it's going to affect the narrative, the actual science. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So in that particular book, for some of us, when we read that, his book, we love the chapter on grass because mm-hmm. we're just like, ah, oh, this is it. Like, this is really explaining what's going on here right. and really getting down to the nitty gritty of why there's these relationships occurring Sometimes people who are just pure, like, humanities historians folks, right. they're just like, oh, my God, that chapter on grass, right. I can't stand it. <laughs> it makes me – it totally made me think of the analogy of, like, Moby Dick. And my my husband loves that book, and some people do not like that book. And he loves the chapter on, like – like whaling, like they go, they go through like, like the, you know, how does this work? Like how, how, you know, how do you All the minutia, the right. minutia. Right. And, and he actually really enjoys that. And there's a very, I, I think a very scientific categorization in that book or in that chapter that I never read it, but you know, he told yes, me, yes. but there's also that book called Cod. Do you know? Yes, and yes. it's yeah, it's like mm-hmm. the history of like the cod, and there's a lot of science in there about like how did this work? Like who actually used the cod? How did the cod? You know, li- what was their life cycle? All that kind of stuff. And and I think it's really interesting that you bring that up. That when you when you are studying history, or really honestly, if you're studying anything, there is an ounce of science that you kind of have to understand to tell the entire story. Or I don't know. I mean, I guess you don't have to, but. It helps. Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing now? What is your current work 
So I do a couple of different things. One is I do my own personal research of things that I am actually interested in. Um, so for example, right now I'm working on a book um, about plants that native people used for purification purposes. So one of the things we know about um, native plant use um, or what is called ethnobotany is that native people, um, indigenous people divided the plant world into two kind of categories. One where plants actually had a specific use and purpose and that plant really does that thing, right? So in terms of medicinal plant use, there's a particular plant that really is an anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. It really does work that way. You can use it as a medicine. There's another type of plants that um, indigenous people use, and that was their relationship to the supernatural realm or the divine or metaphysical. Mm -hmm. And they have completely different plants that um, have that relationship and that connection. Mm -hmm. So in this particular project I'm working on right now, I'm interested in that understanding. You know, why are these, why are they using these specific plants for these specific purposes that may or may not, and usually it's may not, actually have a, you know, some sort of element in it that actually does the thing that they think that is going on. Mm -hmm. And so what they're interested in is having this relationship with the divine and using specific plants that are mediators between our human existence and the supernatural realm and using specific plants for that purpose. Was there any overlap? Was there any like... Um, you have some that are in that medicinal category and some in the spiritual category in like certain tribes and certain cultures. And then you go like 50 miles away <laughs> and it's like some similarity, but then there's some overlap where that switched. I mean, like how many tribes are you kind of studying and, and what regions are those? And So I'm, yeah, so I'm mostly interested in um, the Northern Great Plains as okay. an area, as an eco-region. Okay. And um, so there are several different tribes that are on the Northern Great Plains. And one of the things I'm also interested in looking at is looking at specific eco-regions where there are different tribes using the exact same space, right. but having a completely different relationship with the natural yeah. world and a completely different relationship um, with the um, plant specimens or plant species yeah. that they're using. Um, so I think that's a whole a whole other kind of um, yeah. thing. But that I, level. I actually yeah. teach about that. So I have okay. classes where I have students kind of do a compare and contrast between mm -hmm. um, different tribal groups that exist in the same space. Right. But, you know, one may be an agricultural group, one may be right. hunting and gathering, and one may be something else. And they Or have... a different elevation of the same area. Yeah. So you would have slightly different vegetation. Yes. It's just as a scientist, I'm like, so and then you could... <laughs> yes, yes. And there, you know, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, because of colonization, mm -hmm. you know, we've really missed out sort of at a, a, a great opportunity to study some of these relationships, because people aren't living in the same places that they used to live. Yeah. They got removed from places, their landscapes were collapsed down to smaller spaces. So um, to a certain extent, we have people are beginning to try and um, recreate some of those relationships and try and figure out where people were living and yeah. how they were using the landscape. But that's hard to do now when people are living completely in a different area than they used to live. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's unfortunate because you have, you know, an association with the land and those plants. And if you moved, if a large population had to move, then they probably, I'm guessing there was probably some 
attempt to kind of relate some of the plants that they had there to maybe, maybe this is a similar plant here and trying to continue that, but it wouldn't be the same. And I'd be super interested in that too. Right. Right, How how did that get altered and modified? Right. Right. So, I mean, but it, so like it, the university. (laughs) So many things. Yeah. I was going to say, so at the University of Montana, there's lots of different folks and students, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of graduate students who are interested in different, you know, ideas about plant use and uh, native plant use, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who are interested in studying fire and how native people um, used fire to their benefit, mm-hmm. um, things like, you know, transplanting plants, figuring out diversity of, of plants in different areas. Yeah. Um, so, for example, again, another person in Canada was researching different waterways and one of the things that he, and he was an archaeologist, one of the things that he found was that every 12 miles on certain waterways in Canada, there was kind of like a mini oasis of uh, cottonwood trees and, you know, serviceberry plants and uh, kind of this diversity of plants that you used for medicine and plants that you used for... Every 12 uh, miles. Every 12 miles. And so he was doing this research and he was figuring out that that in the past, before people had horses, that 12 miles was about how far people traveled in a day yeah. when they were traveling. And so what was he was speculating that was occurring was that people were creating um, these little oases of areas where they would camp and right. they'd set up their villages. And then in between, there's, you know, there's not as much diversity, and then you get there, and there is. So, I mean, people have been doing some of this kind of research already to try and figure out kind of the ancient past. Right. um, So let's go back to your book. So what what you want to do in your book is study a specific region and kind of be able to record and and talk about and, you know, uh, share that idea of the divine plant population. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so what I mean, so what I'm interested in is looking at plants that were used specifically for religious purposes. Okay. And and so one of the things I was interested in is the idea of purity and the concept of purity that is um, pretty ubiquitous across uh, religious groups around the world. So most religions have an idea of um, as humans that when we enter a relationship with the divine or enter a relationship with the supernatural, that we have to be blessed or pure. And so, you know, an, an e- easy example to show that is, for example, if you're Catholic and you're going to um, mass, you walk into church and the first thing you do is you take holy water, right, and you bless yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's a very simple kind of blessing slash purification process that now you can go into church and you can sit down and, and participate in mass, right? Right. Okay, so this is very common um, across religions around the world, kind of this idea of that humans need to do something to themselves to be able to present themselves um, in a good way to the divine. Right. So I was just interested in looking at particular plant species that native people on the northern Great Plains were using. And I started that project because an elder in the community had suggested it to me because he was concerned that because, again, of colonization and this collapsing of land um, land use, that only two plants were being used for the most part for purification. And he said there's way more plants that were used in the past, not just these two yeah. that everybody knows about. So let's so I, find out. Yeah, so I started, okay. making, I, I started making a list of what I knew. I started interviewing elders and uh, made a longer list. Um, I went to the archives to look at 
interviews that had been done 100 years ago by early ethnographers and then added to my list. And so right now I have a list of about 40 different um, either plant species or different natural elements like lichen or fungi. Um, also, um, different um, lithic material was used. Um, What's lithic material? Rocks. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought, but I was just like, just in case, just I was, you rocks. know, rocks. rocks. And what of. they would do with that is they would actually take specific types of rocks and they would grind them up into a powder and then they would use that powder for purification, for purifying themselves. And how would they purify themselves with that powder? Usually, um, not and not in all cases, but usually they would burn it, okay. um, and then they would take the smoke um, from whatever that whatever they are burning, and then they would use that to um, what we call smudging or symbolically wash themselves. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I was interested in in, in trying to figure out that diversity, and then I started. Um, I took the list of plant species and other natural elements and started mapping that out. Um, okay. So trying to figure out where on the landscape can you actually find these. Right, because they're probably outside of where absolutely. everyone is pushed. Yes, okay. absolutely. And then, you know, there's some that you can only find up in the alpine wow, okay. area, subalpine, other stuff that you're finding way down in these very arid, um, like badlands areas. And so I was just trying to map out to where you would find these different um, plant specimens. And then then I just started looking at what other people had done research on some of these. And they're not researching them the same way I am, but mm-hmm. they're researching them for other purposes. Yeah. So started looking at what other, mostly botanists, right. um, had done um, to get a sense of if other groups had relationships with these plants as well. Right. Um, or were people just studying them for, you know, um, botanical reasons or diversity, um, right. species diversity reasons. So, yeah, so that's kind of what my, but what I'm really interested in is this relationship between humans, uh, plants, and the divine, mm-hmm. um, and getting a sense of why are they using certain plants and not others. Your earlier question of, you know, are some of these plants, do they actually do have serve a purpose? Like they right. are, really are medicinal versus... Right. Or psychedelic. Or, or Yes, or, or they have no, sometimes... Um, with some of the plants, as far as I know, they don't really do anything. Hmm. You know, they're not, um, you know, an analgesic. They're not. Yeah. They're doing something completely different. They don't even so, taste good. Don't taste good. Wow. They're not, you know. <laughs> so, so the so the question is sort of right. like, what? How did these relationships happen, and why right. are we using you know these different? So anyway, it's kind Cause, of because there's always like also maybe importance to a plant could also be how it grows, right, or where it grows, right, and not necessarily know what it does right right yeah and then uh, there are some people now who are doing research on some of these plants especially when they're looking at the change of the diversity of plant life that exists on the northern great plains because the northern great plains is one of our areas in the united states and in canada um, that's considered like the breadbasket, right, of America. So that's where all the wheat is grown, okay. barley like, is, is grown. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> okay, okay.
so you're working on this book. Mm-hmm. What are your other projects that you are doing now? Because I am assuming, because like everyone here at Sackness are doing a million things at once. So Well, I, I work with my students. So yeah. I'm usually whatever my students are interested in, and I'm also kind of throwing myself into. So, you know, the, uh, we have students who, like, for example, right now, um, myself and another um, professor who's actually a botany slash biology professor, um, we do an internship right now called Native Plant Stewardship and Ethnobotany. Oh, cool. And we have students... Um, Uh, each semester who intern with us. And so those students have to both work in uh, a native plant garden that we have on campus. And then we also have them, we were just this past week out collecting um, seeds. So we teach them how to do seed collecting and then we use those seeds. I do not know how to do that. And and then then we take those seeds and then we do restoration work. So we have specific places that the university owns where we restore the landscape. So we have students who work on different projects related to that, who will uh, do specific projects um, where they are working um, in our, we have an area that the university owns where students can use plots of land and do different kinds of projects. So I help out with students who are imagining different um, projects that they're uh, interested in doing, but the internship is one of the great places where students get to learn, you know, basic botany and ethnobotany, but get to actually use it the way we would use it in um, environmental restoration um, and environmental work. Well, um, so I I do want to ask also, because I I mentioned that we talk about pop culture and we talk about how how we're trying to talk about, you know, science in pop culture and trying to get it out to the um, general population and to other scientists. Is your work ever represented in pop culture that is like totally wrong? And you're making a face, so yes. Um, Or, and is there something that maybe possibly slightly gets it right? So, well, I don't know about pop culture, but I think that when people think about ethnobotany or they think about indigenous um, people and plant use, they almost always think of either medicinal use um, and or psychedelic use. And so I will always get questions and so will the students in classes who've learned a little bit about sort of ethnobotany of, you know, how, how do you you know, how do you cure cancer? You know, how do you do this? You're like, well, I have it secret. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, so there's that kind of like people ask you those questions. You know, indigenous people use plants for such a wide diversity of purposes that people don't understand that diversity. So sometimes I'll spend more time talking about the things that are not medicinal or, you know, not psychedelic, and I only focus on other types of ways that Native people had relationships with plants, um, because otherwise it just becomes about that. Right. Um, Or, you know, if they go to their local, I don't know, record store, CD shop, um, they're always going to encounter smudge sticks and incense oh, yeah. and that sort of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. so, so then they'll always ask questions about that as well, or, they, or they'll think they know. So right. I've, been, I've been schooled many, many times um, by somebody who's gone to the CD store and, right. and come by back. By the majority population. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who come with their little smudge stick and tell me what it does. And I'm like, mm, mm, yeah, I, maybe, I maybe not. 
So okay. I mean, so other than the, div- the like the spiritual relationship or the divine relationship with these um, certain plants and also rocks that we talked about, <laughs> um, you were saying there's other ways in which native populations and native tribes have used you know the botany that you're talking about. So what what are these other things that people can think of instead of thinking about only medicinal? Or or only psychedelic, which is least, I mean is where my brain goes because I know nothing about botany, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I mean, edible uh, is probably the 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 biggest one, right? Um, people don't that real makes sense. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize the diversity of uh, the amount of plants that people actually did eat mm-hmm. um, historically. So they ate anything from you know the same types of things we eat today, roots. Um, berries, uh, different types of leaves. So if you think of the way we eat today, right, um, we eat potatoes, we eat a salad, we have roasted vegetables, you know, and then for dessert we have berries, um, you know, creme brulee. Mm -hmm. Um, They would have all of that but the creme brulee. Right. (laughs) Um, So they ate, you know, a wide diversity of plants. They used plants for tools. Um, They used uh, plants for making um, a lot of different objects, so, so I guess tools, but a lot of objects in the yeah. world that they lived in. They made um, clothing out of right. plants, and especially in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. They made all of their clothing out of plants, including, you know. Um, I don't know anything about that. You tell us more about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they made most of their um, clothing that they wore and hats that they wore. Yeah, oh, everything. Weaving, yes. Yes. Um, okay. that I wears... do know about this. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. You're right. Yeah, so I want to know, this is just an aside because I asked almost all my, my um, guests this, what kind of pop culture, do you like pop culture? And if you do, what are you like watching, reading, liking, movies, anything like that at the moment? That kind of either so, makes you think of your work or gets you away from your work. Yeah, no, there's no. Yeah, I, I love sci-fi, but only a certain kind of sci-fi. What kind? Um, I love the show Continuum. Mm-hmm. I love Continuum. <laughs> I love Fringe. Yeah, I don't watch Fringe. Okay. Oh, I should. I should. I. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. It's the same. It's it's very. You're like it's both, the same thing. It's the same thing. They're very they're very similar. It's done both and so things. BC. No, no. So I like I like very I like um, sci-fi that's thoughtful, but not gory or like a horror movie. You know how some so like, sci-fi can yeah. be horror movie-ish. So I don't like those. But I so like Star the ones... Trek Next Generation. Yeah. Oh, it's so good though. <laughs> it's so good. I like things where it's like time travel. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and just kind of, but and, and thoughtful, thoughtful. How is yeah. that not related to your work? You deal with history. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can see this link here. Okay, so I wanted to thank you for talking to me, and I've I've actually learned a lot. You've made me think about botany more than I think I ever have in my whole entire life. <laughs> and it was nice as as soon as I was reading about you, I was like physicist. But yeah, thank you for. So talking now I to just me. read about physics. Yeah. Do you really? I do. I what do you see, read about? I read about chaos theory and oh yeah, quantum all the, entanglement. All, all the that, stuff. All I that avoid. stuff. Yeah. Oh, I love that stuff. <laughs> Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about in the last two minutes? Don't don't eat things that you don't know what they are. Oh my god! Right, that's huge. I had a student once who, uh, well, me and Marilyn, my co-professor. Uh, we had a student who uh, collected a plant that's called death camas. And it's called death camas for a reason. It's because it's poisonous. And he went and he collected tons of this because he thought it was onions. And then he took it home and then he sauteed it in butter and then he ate it. And then he got sick 
And then he ended up in the emergency room. And then he was trying to contact me in Maryland. And then he got a hold of Maryland. And then he had a picture of it. And he's like, Marilyn, what is this? And she's like, that's death camis. So then he talked to the, the, the doctors at the emergency room. And then they like knew what to do. And um, anyway, he recovered. So he's fine. He's fine now. But after that, now he's our he's our cautionary tale. We tell every single student, like, do not eat something, especially take it home and saute it in butter. And oh, my god! You may die. That is a wonderful story. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you for talking to me. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE, Spark Radio, and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina Barber DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore, Andrew Norton, and Tori Hiley. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.